it drives you. So just to close that that story, it drives you to eventually get good at something that mm. you didn't originally think you had any inclination nor interest in. So I think that definitely makes a difference. Now, whether it's of use, <laughs> um, what I'll say is this. Hey, coconuts! Welcome back to another episode of Chills with TFC. Yes, I am going to interview someone today. So, and this person is very special. If you don't know him, I don't know which kampong you you come out from, but he is the rising star of the Workers' Party. Okay, none other than Jameis Lim. But but more important than that, beyond just a politician, he's a professor. He's written a lot of stuff. You can check out his blog. Uh, this. Very, very old school looking blog. It looks like it doesn't exist anymore in today's world. Like wet one, wet one kind of blog. Right? There are all sorts of stuff that he put down there. His poems, his research, his papers and all that. So yes, this is a one first part of a two-part series with him. And why, why is there a two-part series? Because... Um, usually when we record with any guest There will always be the pre-part Which is where, you know, we talk talk, sing song Kind of get the guest comfortable Before we flow into the main topic But in this part where we were kind of hanging out I thought there were a lot of good juices And it all revolves around this underlying idea of Is the consumer a rational actor? Right, so with this idea, it underpins a lot of other big ideas in economics and then in policies and then in a lot of theories that educate you on your personal choices in personal finance and investing. So with that, I'm going to welcome you, you know, to hang out with me and Jameis to talk about this idea. Is the individual a rational one? Welcome back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My inner gig is yearning to ask. Mm. Is economics really quantitative? Oh, like, yeah. Can yeah. I really use it to predict? So modern economics is very quantitative. Mm. Uh, you, you have two questions. One is whether it's quantitative. <laughs> yes. And the second part of can the I question, which is I- implied, implied, is, is, yes. it, is all that math any use? <laughs> yes. So, yes, so, exactly. So let me start with the first. The first is it's undeniably quantitative and almost effusively and, and obscenely so. Uh, it no longer shocks me, but for most people who undertake graduate studies uh, in economics or even pick up a professional economics journal, the first thing that confronts them is uh, a vast amount of mathematical content. It's, it's, yeah. it's just the way that economists express ideas succinctly and clearly. So that's just what we do. You, you gain a level of comfort with it, but you have to, like everyone else, break through that hump. And because of the underlying love for the subject, it drives you, so just to close that that story, it drives you to eventually get good at something that Mm. you didn't originally think you had any inclination nor interest in. So I think that definitely makes a difference. Now, whether it's of (laughs) use, um, what I'll say is this, it can be of use Mm. uh, as long as 
you keep a few points in mind. One is that it's scaffolding. It's scaffolding that disciplines your thinking about phenomena. So a lot of people think economics is just about finance and money. It's not. A lot of it's just about modeling human behavior and interaction between economic agents in the economy. And a lot of that uh, benefits from a certain degree of discipline in how you approach it. Now, on one hand, it can become very dogmatic. So unless you start your modeling with rational agents optimizing over the infinite horizon dynamically, you don't get very far in modern macroeconomics these days. Yep. Now, that said, that level of discipline, as long as it isn't something that becomes completely dogmatic, it can be valuable because you rule out kind of anything goes thinking where you just wave your hands and say, well, anything is possible. Mm. Uh, of course, sophisticated and, and experienced modelers will tell you anything is possible. <laughs> if you, you can make the math say anything you want. Mm, mm, mm. But you are nevertheless constrained in certain ways in terms of how you can say something and how you, you have to express something. And you are also constrained in terms of exactly how far you can push an idea. Mm. And I think there's value in that kind of discipline. So that's in terms of the theory. Now, when you then take it to the data, the other advantage of having mathematical thinking is that it ensures that you are always an adherent of what the data do or do not say. So you build a certain level of respect for what is evidence and what doesn't constitute evidence, what may be flimsy evidence and what may be more... Um, robust evidence. And so, I think, so what is flimsy and what is robust? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the simplest example that we teach even our undergraduates, right, is that correlation is not causation and that's, that's pretty standard. Great, yes, yeah. yes. So Please. just because you see two things mm. go together, yes. uh, you this is very uh, egregious behavior in financial markets. You yeah, see yeah. this all the time. Just because the bird chirps and the auntie opens a window doesn't mean the auntie is a bird whisperer, okay? Among other things, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. And and so mm. um, it's definitely the case that um, you need to understand why you are drawing a relation. It doesn't mean, look, correlation is a statistical fact. Mm. So it does mean that two things co-vary. Mm. Whether they co-vary because of coincidence or they co-vary because there is an underlying relationship directly between them or if there's some intervening third thing that is influencing the movements of the uh, of both of these things. So, so is there value in understanding correlation? Or should we always be on a process of digging for causation? Um, I think there's value in understanding correlation if inherently you are in an exploratory mode. You're trying to understand what are the things that do matter versus what doesn't matter. But even then, you have to be very careful because the correlation between two things may be zero because you have two countervailing drivers for one of the variables, both of which influence or are influenced by the third variable, but which act in opposite direction. So then you end up zeroing out, even though independently the two things may have value. So you, you do want to always approach it in a disciplined manner, but also with this framework of wanting to ultimately get to the bottom of why there's a relationship. And if 
one thing might be causal uh, for another. And that's when you go back to theory, explain why it is that, that mm. something uh, moves in one direction versus another. Great. I, I'm totally geeking out. I really want to get the questions, but I have one more sure. question. <laughs> yeah. So do you believe in uh, rational agents? Like, do you think people are rational or are there all sorts of other agents participating in the markets? No, agents mm. are by far not rational. Mm. But but it anchors they, all the major theories on there. Yes. Well, it anchors a lot of a major lot, theories. Okay, okay. It an- anchors the most complete framework for thinking about financial markets and economic participants in, in, in the economy. But um, what it doesn't do is it isn't a complete description of the world. And I am uncomfortable going all the way to the other extreme and saying, no, no, everyone is irrational and so nothing is predictable. Mm. Rather, you have shades in between. At the very least, you have uh, behavioral economics and behavioral theories. And what's powerful about behavioral theories isn't that they are interesting nuggets of psychological information that that gets weaved yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yes. that gets weaved and you're, you're interested like, in them. But um, they have value in the sense that they are predictive. So um, Dan Ariely, a behavioral economist and psychologist, he was the one that argued that uh, in favor of being predictably irrational. So you could be irrational from a rational uh, agent standpoint, but if you were consistently predictably so, there's value in... Uh, than having that theoretical overlay. Of course, of course. So I wouldn't go as far as to go all the way as every, everyone just acts however mm. they want and then there's no value in... Well, then you can argue anything, right? Yeah. So that could well be the case for one or two people or even a significant minority. But if you have enough... Um, and this is the powerful counter-argument from the rational agent framework. If you have rational people making decisions uh, at the margin and they are that rational approach ends up once again thinking about financial markets making money then it doesn't matter that there's a whole bunch of other irrational people in the economy in fact in the Nobel Prizes uh, that's oh I forget his name now but there is a there is an experimental economist who won the prize uh, maybe 20 years ago, for his work on experimental markets. And he demonstrated very convincingly in, in artificial markets, but experimental in the sense that he used human subjects, that you could converge to a theoretical equilibrium uh, with a very small number of agents, something like 8 to 10, even though the market may be larger than that. Um, and as long as you can converge toward an equilibrium that is implied by the underlying rational uh, solution to the problem, then you have to ask yourself, well, if in the real world, what is implied by the rational solution is actually something that consistently can make money and consistently uh, can lead to better decisions. If that's the case, then you could still have many irrational agents in the economy, but you don't ever want to rule out the rational agents and the rational approach because that approach is what will get you to the finish line. I mean, to put it simply, not all factors should be weighted equally, mm. right? There are certain factors that are that outweigh the others, right? And yep. we should look at the big ones. Because too many people take the small little stuff and 
kind of kill off the the whole argument. And the that. fact is, everyone will have their own worldview, yeah, and their own way. And, and by worldview, I would even go as far as to say you can quantify it. You, the, let's say that you have three types of traders in the economy. Uh, you have the rational ones that rely on what we sometimes call fundamental analysis, looking at underlying macroeconomic uh, phenomena. You have so, so rational in that sense of being technical and no, no. no and, that, yeah. I'll, I'll get to technical yeah, yeah, analysis yeah, yeah, in a yeah, second, yeah. but but rational in the sense that they optimize Garden subject by... to underlying uh, econ- because ultimately, what do financial markets reflect? They f- reflect uh, profit-making opportunities for business. And, and those businesses in turn respond to the underlying macroeconomic conditions for the economy. You, you might quibble over which business, <laughs> under, which businesses and which underlying fundamentals matter, but at least those within the school of thought would by and large subscribe to the notion that they are looking at uh, measurable, quantifiable mm, mm. data that comes from macroeconomic uh, fundamentals and even some microeconomic fundamentals for for companies such as you know the usual financial metrics you look at uh, cash flow and and liquidity ratios and so on and so forth. So you th- there's that group, quantitatively oriented, for lack of a better word, what we call rational agents. Then you have those that operate much more through behavioral tools, um, and by th- behavioral, I would even lump together people who work with. Uh, strategies like trend following and technical analysis. And to the extent that it's behavioral, it's behavioral be- or, or technical because it's not rational in the sense that it, it doesn't rely on... It cannot be explained well by a rational framework. But if I can measure it enough, then it becomes rational. Well, or I, I would take that... Uh, and I can, uh, I, and I I I can repeat I would nuance that a little bit by saying yes. if enough people mm. subscribe to that strategy, it becomes rational because... You just need to not be the last sucker holding the bag, right? Really? So if, if everyone uh, is following... Okay, look, there's a common technical signal, head and shoulders, right? If it's the idea is that something will rise, it'll taper off, and then you, it rises again. Then- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. forms the shoulder and the head, and then it would dip and then there would be plateau before it drops again. So that's a technical signal that some people look for. Now, you may say that this is financial voodoo, right? It's just drawing out patterns in, in the data that shouldn't exist. And that could be true. Yeah, I could draw a star. You could draw a star, you could draw it. Well, <laughs> star's tricky, but you have to have real genuine skill to do that. But whatever the, that pattern may be. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, if enough financial market participants buy into that, it's a matter of coordination. And if everyone coordinates toward that, it suddenly becomes, at least in the short run, rational. Eventually, you would think that um, the underlying fundamentals of the business or the economy would filter in and eventually that pattern would be dissipated because it's, it no longer uh, would be supportable 
by underlying okay. Okay. Uh, financial or, or macroeconomic phenomenon. But in the meantime, it can still make you money. And, and so while it exists, while enough people still buy into it, it, before you're proven to be the last guy holding the bag, it's still rational. Mm. So that group of participants, they exist and they constitute a third of many financial markets. And statistically, statistic. Uh, well, mm. yes. If you if you do surveys, you'll find mm. that a third do about what we've been referring to fundamental rational analysis. Mm. A third do this so called technical analysis, and then a third uh, follow what is known as market microstructure, where what they're really doing is they are looking at buying and selling the, the actual buying and selling flows in the market, open interest and mm. stuff like that. And Those are your market makers. Yeah, they are, they are the market makers, but they're also participants who trade according to these to kind flows. of signals mm-hmm. to flows. And and so in many financial markets, you, you'll have this distribution of these three types of agents. Um, and who's to say what is going to dominate the action at any one time? Now, just because they are distributed third each time doesn't mean that they are the ones that matter in any given point of time. It could well be that there's not much signal that's coming from the macroeconomy, from the fundamental side of the story, in which case what's dominating the day-to-day trading activity are those people who are trading according to something else. So the weight that you place on one versus another uh, agent could vary over time. And I guess that's what makes a good trader or a good mm, market mm, participant mm. in so far as those participants are interested in making money. Because a clear measure of success is making money. If that is your objective in entering financial markets, then that is that is Which most, the metric for success. Is it is it not, you know, objective to say most people are doing that? I mean Well, I, I think it really depends. Uh, it's just about the means, like how it's just about the strategy. Like different people adopt different strategies, no, well, but everybody's in the market to make well, money. Well, for starters, even firms. Mm. So you would think what firms want to do is uh, they oh, okay. want uh, as high a stock price as mm. possible. I, I get what you're doing. Uh, but you know they enter markets typically with an initial public offering, and then the truth is beyond that one quarter, uh, that, that that first IPO. Um, they don't get much of the benefits that come yeah. from, from, it from the a financial movements. game. Yeah, yes. it becomes mm-hmm. a financial game. Of course, if many firms retain a lot of the stocks that they issued, in which case then then sure they do benefit from and at a certain valuation yeah, they issue more, right? Particular yeah. valuation. Okay. But yeah. if in the extreme example, if you are someone that has has IPO'd and you divest entirely, mm-hmm. then that firm, which could still be a going concern, has absolutely nothing to do with benefiting from from a, a given financial valuation. Mm. So there could still be a disconnect. And, and I think that's my point. And likewise, there are people who participate in markets uh, for very different reasons. Uh, more recently, I'm sure you've had guests that talk about ESG. <laughs> and so... The, Do you believe in it? Oh, oh I mean, it, it's there. Okay. Whether you buy into that as an investment philosophy, whether you... Uh, want to subscribe to a fund that is designed on those principles is there. Mm. And if I am a uh, independently wealthy family, I'm not, but if I'm an independently wealthy <laughs> family... Uh, you must come from a humble f- background, right? a, <laughs> No, no, but that's the truth. Uh, 
Everyone must come from a humble background. I mentioned my mother. She she worked in a stock brokering firm. Uh, unfortunately, she wasn't in the front office where the big bucks are. She, she was, was in the back office, just processing the big trades that that was making everyone the, the big bucks. So uh, that didn't uh, yes, unfortunately yeah. filter down to me. Uh, but what I'll say is, the if I were in a lot uh, a wealthy family, I may decide. Well, I'm willing to accept a lower return on my already sizable wealth uh, in exchange for companies, supporting companies and businesses that ultimately are consistent with my own moral or ethical principles. Okay. And and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. People have different preferences in life. Mm-hmm. And some for some people, it is to make as much money as you can. And you, you could even overlay an ethical... Uh, idea behind that, which is, well, if I make as much money as I can, then I, I can then take all that extra money that I earn and give it to causes that I believe in. No, so, then that's like, well, that's like trickle down. Oh, again, that's like, you, you, you could make the argument. I'm just saying right, that. Right. Or you could say, I will only put my money where my beliefs are. Mm. I will never support um, tobacco companies or oil companies yeah. because I have that ethical belief. Devices. Uh, and, yeah. and mm. you know, I'm willing to earn three or four uh, percentage points lower returns mm, mm, mm. Uh, to sleep comfortably and soundly at night, then that is what you choose to do with your money and more power to you. Yeah, and that's that's what I observed with the earlier days of ESG investing mm. before it became a retail product. <laughs> with, with a lot of uh, the wealthy people, they do that, right? Mm. So they come into the space vividly being aware of a diminished return. Right? Oh, okay, we'll lose some returns, you know, our companies that we invest don't need to be fully profit-maximizing. Yeah. You know, they take some to give back and do all that. But the question now, you know, in the retail space is, is ESG going to beat the market, yeah. right? So, so if you are high net worth mm. uh, and you have your own family office, you can still buy that. You can mm-hmm. you, you set up your own office, you can hire your own uh, money managers and you can still make that happen. Mm. Uh, of course, once things become, um, for lack of a better word, commercialized, and monetize and they become products, retail products, like you said, then inevitably you will have the possibility that it deviates from the original because everyone has to has have their own shtick, right? So you, you're selling the product in a particular way. And once things become a retail product, then I'm afraid to say that 90% of, the, of those funds are not going to beat the market, just on average, right? Separate from... From ESG or not, ninety percent across the board. Ninety percent of active funds don't beat the market. So perhaps you have found both the nice confluence of uh, an ESG fund as well as a fund that has very good uh, insights into how the markets work, and they are be able to be in the ten percent. But by and large, you're going to have a lot that aren't, and unfortunately, you also have a lot of funds that are mostly shadow indexes. They hug very close to what the overall stock market direction is and they deviate here and there. That deviation may make money, you may lose money on average. Even if you entirely follow the market, then once you net out the costs of running that, then you end up uh, in, in, in the red. So I think, uh, that again, nothing against having ESG funds, uh, 
investment banks need to find their products to hawk <laughs> to uh, the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But for myself, uh, if I did have that belief, I would say the way to realize ESG, unfortunately, if you're a small retail investor, uh, would be to just make sure you do your homework. And if 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 that is really important to you, if uh, the the type of investments are really important to you, then go ahead and and do your homework and only invest in those funds that, that clearly articulate in a transparent fashion what those principles are. As, as a side note, and I've shared this before in different fora, actually, if you want the benefits of the E in the ESG, so the, the environmental part of it, for instance, you do want ESG funds to underperform relative to non-ESG funds. So, so think of it as you have a, a company that is two companies do the same business, but one cares about the environment and the other doesn't. What you want really is you want to somehow starve the one that doesn't care for the environment of funds, right? So the idea being that you want to discourage that pollutive business. But what happens when you starve a company of funds? Well, their cost of capital goes up, mm-hmm. which means that they're going to have higher returns. So the flip side of uh, ESG investing being giving you slightly lower returns is that inevitably those that aren't uh, following ESG principles are giving higher returns. And that's exactly what you want. You want them to face higher cost of capital so that eventually, hopefully, they will change their business models and and, and all go out of business. So, yeah, it, in the short run at least, having a lower return from ESG on average isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm. And conversely, having a higher return from non-ESG mm. uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I, I push you further than that to talk about the kind of longer-term growth trajectory of the E's. Mm. Right? So to be fair, ESG is like, Three different things lumped together, right? It's it's very hard to quantify each of them separately. And I don't think a lot of people are quantifying mm-hmm. very well. Maybe G is a little bit easier to quantify. Good governance versus not good governance, there are some reflective mm-hmm. measures, mm-hmm. right? S is like, hello, there's so many things. like you know, And then E, at this point in time, the unit measurement is carbon, pretty much, right? People are measuring based on how much lesser I'm producing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then by extension... Do you think that there's a longer-term trajectory for these companies that are invested in this E idea to have better technology down the road? You know, because it's it runs counterintuitive. Yeah, but then, then yeah. if you're not as profitable, you don't have money to do R and D. Then blah blah blah. Yeah, so the, I think yeah. if you really want to have solid long-run returns from an ESG company, then you leave the domain of the big boys, th- those existing companies that are already traded and so on and so forth. And you start getting into more venture and angel investor kind of territory. Mm-hmm. I think there is significant money to be made there, but there's also significant it's a different amounts that can be. It's a different ball game. I think that it's entirely possible uh, to find these opportunities and to make good money that you can sleep soundly at night over. But that's a space that I'm personally. I, I have friends who do it, but I'm not in that space myself. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have the capital. I remember, a poor boy from a poor family. Scaramouche, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh So, for me, 
it, I, I won't be able to be the typical um, investor in those funds. You know, I just don't have enough net worth. Yeah. But for those that are able to participate and, and households that uh, are wealthy enough and, and want to do well while doing good, I think that opportunity does exist. Yeah. And we can always, you know, another time talk a tangent of this whole like um, accredited investor and them blocking out certain access to to these private spaces you know yeah, and, I mean, and that is a long yeah long discussion. The, the, the discussion about the democratization of, of finance the early phases yes um you you would it, 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 i understand the tension i understand yeah, that the, yeah. the tension is that the regulator doesn't want to uh, have a whole bunch of uncles and aunties that invested they are 50,000 cpf retirement funds uh, hopefully more. Oh, yeah. hopefully more, <laughs> but into fifty thousand bet you know, left like how many years, right? Yes, I, yes. I, unfortunately, the reality <laughs> is that there are many with fifty thousand, hundred thousand. And uh, that's what we're gonna talk about. And okay, and, okay. But so, <laughs> so for those individuals, unfortunately, uh, you 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 do want to protect the so-called unsophisticated investor from scams and and. Uh, financial products that they don't fully understand that could potentially lead to significant losses, especially if they they don't have enough uh, intellectual discipline to stay on with uh, an investment if it goes south for a period of time. Now, that said, you also want to provide as much access to people who don't happen to have that capital but have either uh, a much longer time horizon or have enough... Um, sophistication even if they don't have the liquidity to want to access these things and i think that that possibility can exist in in a very constrained sandbox uh, where you you do have to qualify as an accredited investor but i don't think that having money should be what qualifies you to be an accredited investor mm. or maybe the room uh, there is a market opportunity for funds to set up where the fund itself can be the accredited investor, and then uh, you gain some validation for the small retail investor to decide participate to in the fund. participate in your fund. But at this moment in time, it's not possible. For uh, an accredited no, invested fund, your investors have to be accredited investors. Yeah, so 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 that's why I mean by that there are avenues, I think, where we can make that happen. Mm. Um, are you going to table that notion? Uh, that, Cannot say... <laughs> There are there are many many uh, interesting things. ideas okay, okay. that I think we we can think about um, okay. in in changing our financial space as Singapore. In, interestingly, as Singaporeans become more and more uh, financially savvy, right? So this is uh, the correlation that comes with having a more educated population. And if that's the case, then ultimately you do want them to exploit the the, the most uh, important magic that exists in investment, which is compound interest. And so to get in early and uh, to be able to benefit from some of these high returns, but high returns that only come from having a sufficiently long investment horizon. Great. Yeah. And we will come back in a while to talk about some of these other, mm. um, you know, things that people are thinking of, you know, your, your GST and all that mm-hmm. Yeah, in, uh, in a moment's time, right? Mm-hmm. 
Hey Coconuts, I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and will help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Like, share, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> also, if you have something interesting that you want us to go through or someone interesting that you want us to interview, reach out to us at hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week. And always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.